Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. Here we are, Number our two. second podcast. We're back. Yeah, you've, I'm starting over again because I you made me uncomfortable. Yeah, okay. yep, that's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In three, two, two one. Here we are, Mindvine Podcast number two. Yes, we're back. I'm thankful to my mom who viewed it 240 times on YouTube to make it appear as though we have a She's robust a beautiful audience. beautiful woman. We're going to send her <laughs> all uh, T-shirts, mugs, everything. Yeah, we should. Nice uh, uh, we launched our first Mindvine Podcast in August. Uh, we've had some traction on YouTube, iTunes, and SoundCloud, and uh, it's been a positive experience, so much so that they agreed to send us here. We're at the Toronto Hilton for the Mental Health for All conference, which is hosted by the Canadian Mental Health Association. Today is the uh, Ontario portion of the conference. The next two days after that mm-hmm. are the uh, the national conference. I think they were probably hoping that the conference was further away from the <laughs> hospital in Toronto. But anyway, this is a it's a great conference. There's a lot of great activity, and uh, and we picked up a mood dude. Nice. I know this is. Uh, uh, it looks, for people that don't know, like behind the scenes, we've got John Upshaw and Jordan LaRue that do the, the camera work and the technical stuff. This is actually, this could be his uh, twin brother. This is Orange Jordan. So if you want to know what Jordan actually looks like, hmm. it's, uh, Jordan is orange too. He, this guy's a little slightly more orange, but his it's pretty much, better too. Jordan has a little more hair, but, but it's, it's a spinning image. Aside from the mood, dude, there's been yeah. other highlights in the last uh, yes. few hours of the conference. It's I love going to these types of conferences because, uh, especially when there's a real focus on stigma mm-hmm. and what we need to do as a, as a sector moving forward. There are a lot of passionate people here uh, talking, but a lot of passionate people uh, in the audience yep. just here because they want to see a, a difference. They want to make a difference in in the way mental health is perceived and in uh, how the mental health system works. And I think these things are important, and, and kudos to CMHA. I think, you know, there's so many talented people and so many good ideas. We need to come together. You know, the mental health system needs to come together to find solutions. And I think events like these get us sort of thinking and, and collaborating more, and I think it's fantastic to be here. And following up on that, uh, from Ontario Shore's perspective, um, we are also in the business of creating conversations and, yes, we and are. reducing stigma. And we recently launched with the Ontario Shores Foundation for Mental Health, our awareness campaign. And uh, it's called My Mental Illness Didn't Stop Me. We have uh, a number of patients who have shared their story. And they're on billboards, they're on uh, buses, um, uh, there's uh, photos on a website called focusedonrecovery.ca with their story. Um, These are really inspiring people, inspiring stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, we hope that our community and the people who need us take the time to kind of get to know these people who have been so courageous in sharing their stories. And I think that's one of the biggest ways that we can eradicate stigma and discrimination is, is story-based. I think um, a lot of stigma is kind of the fear of the unknown and not knowing. And I think once people start talking about their stories and you realize these are people, you know, in your family, you know, they're no different. And I think when we, we share those stories, I think they have such a profound impact on the community that I think th- that is really the key for us to kind of tear that down is, is 
is we need to talk about it and we need to share those stories. And I think that's what this campaign does. The proudest moment for me when we, um, when we embark on campaigns like this or just in the work we do every day is the impact that it can have on the patients who agree to participate. Correct. And yeah. uh, I've seen it with Jennifer, who's a musical and drama teacher uh, who uh, suffered from anxiety and postpartum depression, and she shared her story. And I've seen on social media just the reaction to, to her being so courageous and so brave, and the people around her, her family and friends, her community, are rallying around her, and they're, and they're displaying their pride. And I think that's really rewarding, you know, it's rewarding from, from my perspective mm -hmm. because uh, of the work we do, but uh, it's a big leap for a patient to come out and, 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 sure. and share their story, intimate details of their life, and it's nice for them uh, to see how, uh, see the positive difference that it's making. And I think there's always that fear of, of doing that, is, is what's gonna happen? I think we operate a lot about what ifs. So. What if, you know, I share that story and now everybody on social media that, you know, it's going to be more damaging. And I think what we found is it's the opposite's true. I think that um, we've seen young people that have, during sort of their darkest days of their illness, have been traumatized through social media. And then after actually sharing the story and talking about what they went through, even from the per perspective of people that might have been in school, that were kind of bystanders, that knew what was going on but didn't say anything, like, oh my God, you went through that, I'm so sorry. I think, I think sharing those stories, and we have to sort of move away from that, we don't talk about it to, it can be very profound and impactful when we do talk about it. Talking about it is why we're here. Yes. And uh, so we are gonna be here for three days, uh, starting today, uh, talking to uh, various presenters and keynote speakers and influencers in, in the mental health sector. And today we got a pretty cool lineup. Yes. We have uh, from the Mental Health Commission of Canada, the Vice President of Organizational Performance and Public Affairs, Michelle Rodrigue. Yep. But first we have Dr. Dave Williams. He's uh, an interesting guy to say the least. <laughs> yes. He's currently the President and CEO of South Lake Regional Health Center in Newmarket. Uh, he's also a astronaut, an aquanaut, uh, and an overall fascinating guy. Yes, and I was reading his resume, preparing you know for today and stuff, and it was like, boy, I haven't done enough with my life. This guy is—I'm really excited to be able when he comes on to be able to interview him because he's done so much, and uh, we're really we're excited about the, the lineup that we've got for this. So we're here today with uh, Dr. Dave Williams, the uh, guest of our second podcast. Uh, it's pretty exciting that we're we actually here, that we actually uh, got the chance to do a second podcast, and we're here at the CMHA conference, the Ontario version, the first day. And Dr. Williams was just the keynote speaker, and uh, he's got quite the bio, so I'm going to go through it here uh, before really? I officially I, welcome... I read it last night. It took me about three hours <laughs> yeah. to, to read yeah. it, but go ahead. You know, don't be overly <laughs> impressed. I'm an average guy that just got lucky, was in the right place at the right time. Well, See, I think it was more like... I was thinking when I was reading it last night, you know the game of life? You have friends, and they spin, and they always get the cool jobs... And they seem to get everything, and I get the mechanic. That's kind of what I think. <laughs> That's what I think about. Yeah. Well, okay. Right, go ahead. Might as well get this out of the way because it's quite long. So, <laughs> Dr. Dave Williams, um, our guest, was uh, an emergency room doctor. He's been director of emergency services at Sunnybrook. 
formerly the director at, for the McMaster Center for Medical Robotics. Um, uh, he's currently the president and CEO at South Lake Regional Health Center. And he's been, you've been and that's in Newmarket and services to uh, York Region. And before that, he's had several lives. <laughs> so among them, he was a, an astronaut, which I don't know a lot of CEOs that can say that. He uh, joined the exclusive club when he blasted into space uh, aboard the Space Shuttle Columbia and again on the Shuttle Endeavor, where he walked out to the great beyond. Uh, he's also lived and worked in the world's only underwater ocean laboratory, so he's Canada's first dual astronaut and aquanaut. Um, he's had two, as I mentioned, two space shuttle missions. He's logged almost 700 hours in space, and uh, well, some would argue I've lived some hours in space as well, but a different type <laughs> of space. True. And uh, uh, he's he leads the league in spacewalks by Canadians with three. So um, that's just a Coles Notes version of what you've accomplished in your professional life, and we're happy to have you here uh, yeah, today. Thank you for coming. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to be here and also to be able to chat with you. And huge congratulations to both of you and Ontario Shores for the podcast. I think this is fantastic. Well, Great. Thank well, you. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons that we actually started the podcast is uh, at Ontario Shores, we are uh, committed uh, to breaking down barriers, to elim eliminating stigma, and this is a way for us to ignite conversations and uh, talk about mental health, which I'm sure in your career, you've seen the evolution of mental health in terms of the way it was uh, perceived maybe earlier in your career to where you are uh, mm -hmm. today and uh, sitting in on your keynote wonder if you can talk about how, because you've mentioned several experiences just in the, the talk earlier today uh, about you know, paddling down the Northwest Passage with your daughter in a First Nations community and, and what that experience was like. And uh, Can you talk a little bit about um, mental health care and the way it's kind of evolved uh, in your uh, different lives uh, in your career? There have been huge changes in mental health, I think, over the past 40 to 50 years, but there's really so much more change that's required. And, you know, I think we'll have finally got there, if we can say that, when it's okay to talk about mental health in a candid manner. When we think about a statistic of one in five Canadians at mm -hmm. some point in their lives will have a major mental health challenge that they'll face. That's a big statistic, and that means that over a lifetime, there's a significant probability that each one of us will have our own challenges. And really, instead of focusing on disease and you know some of the big issues associated with mental health and labeling people, I think we need to understand that mental health is something that we need to embrace. Mental health wellness, behavioral wellness, is something that all of us should aspire to and understand that at any given point in time, I may not be at my best when I come to work. I might be having a day where I'm sad or depressed or I'm anxious or I'm upset. And that's just natural for all of us as individuals. So I think creating an environment where we can talk about mental health mm. and that it's okay to be able to do that and come up with unique solutions to something that really is a problem that could potentially affect so many of us. And I, I, don't, I don't want to get off the mental health topic, but I was really interested how, with your medical career, how did you get involved with the Canadian Space Agency. How did you make that transition or what opportunity presented itself that you could go, kind of go down this path? 
So as a kid, I, I'll be the first to say I'm a totally average kid. And in fact, if you asked any of my elementary school teachers who's going to be the astronaut, I would have been the last <laughs> person that they would have picked, right? right. No, no, not Williams. That's not going to be him. But anyway, the difference between myself and I think my peers is that in the 1960s, I watched on television Alan Shepard lift off to go into space. I was uh, seven years old at the time. And I thought, wow, that is for me. That's what right. I want to do. But I was told, you can't. Because in those days, the only people flying in space were the Americans and the Russians. And as a Canadian, nobody thought that it would be possible to be able to fly in space. But I never gave up. And, you know, when you think about some of the interesting books that are coming out, like Grit by Angela Duckworth, right. and she talks about the importance of linking passion with persistence, resilience, and going forward and believing in yourself. That's really the only thing that made me go from being average to being able to achieve my dreams. I just never never gave up. Great. When, when did that opportunity sort of present itself to, to go down that path? Was it just... Like, how did you first enter into sort of the Canadian Space Agency? Was there just an opening or an opportunity presented itself and you just... So life is often full of ironies. And uh, in 1966, when I was told I couldn't be an astronaut and things, I thought I wanted to be an aquanaut. And you remember in those days, Jacques Cousteau yes. was, uh, you know, the <laughs> Calypso, underwater explorer. Yeah, yeah. And Dr. Joe McGinnis, Canada's diving doctor. So these were my heroes. So I started scuba diving when I was 12. Okay. And I thought, if I can't go to space, I want to live and work underwater, be an aquanaut. So I went to McGill University, did my undergraduate uh, graduate degree in neuroscience, went to medical school. And the first application for Canadian astronauts was in 1983 and I missed it because I was in my last year of medical school I was so busy studying I found out about it after the application deadline was passed so I couldn't apply so I continued working as a physician thrilled with what I was able to do and then in 1992 the Canadian space program had its second uh, selection process there were 5,300 some odd people applied and I love to say 600 applications from kids less than 10 years of age and I was very fortunate I was one of the four people hired. Oh, great. And just keeping with that, um, I know you've written a lot about the effects of space on the body and, and things like that. I'm just wondering, what did you find as far as uh, an astronaut sort of microgravity and the effects on the brain when, when, when someone's in space? And what kind of changes happen in, in when you're in outer space? as far as cognitive things as well. So our first space flight was called Neurolab. And in fact, the whole mission was dedicated to understanding how the brain adapts and functions in this unique environment. We had experiments coming from all over the world. There, right. Canada actually had an experiment that came from York University about vestibular physiology and orientation in space. And it was truly remarkable because I have a master's degree in neuroscience to be able to go into that environment and actually do fundamental research on how the brain adapts to such a unique environment couple of interesting things. I, I did have a chance to speak with Oliver Sacks, oh. who is truly a remarkable individual, yeah. and I tried to coax him into writing a book called My Brain in Space. <laughs> so Oliver's going, no, you should write it. And I go, I, I only have a master's. I mean, you're the expert. You should write it. Well, long and the short is he wasn't able to do that before he very sadly passed mm. away last year. Mm. But I, I do think that uh, there's a lot of really interesting stories about how the human body functions, how the brain adapts to that unique environment. Great. In your talk uh, this morning, you talked about collaboration and the parallels, which I don't think a lot of people would see on the surface, the parallels between um, your work in the space program and your work now as a CEO of a hospital. But you were able to draw the line in terms of how people collaborate in space and how we can kind of bring that model uh, to healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
So space is all about working together. What's really exciting is that you have countries from all over the world working together to be able to send humans successfully into space. It's a story of success. It's a story of collaboration. And what I learned in the space program is that when we work together, we can overcome seemingly impossible challenges. And one of the really exciting aspects of space is understanding that any given individual can bring their experience, their perspective to bear to make a situation better. So a good question is, if you go to space and you have to treat a medical problem that arises, what evidence do you use to treat it? Do you use Russian medical mm. publications? Mm. Do you use American medical publications, Canadian, European? And we, the International Space Program, came to accept that we would use an evidence-based paradigm to be able to treat astronauts in space. And then we had to talk about the differences in how we collect and analyze data from different parts of the world, came to a consensus on evidence-based healthcare delivery in space, and that's something that we've been able to go forward with. It's a story of collaboration. You can imagine all the discussion that went into coming to consensus. Mm. Uh, just keeping, you know, kind of with the hospital theme, in your presentation today, there was a, a lot of different points I thought, oh, so neat in today's healthcare world because um, while we're evolving, it's I think the evolution in healthcare has kind of been slow, especially in mental health care. We've gone, we've come a long way in in ten years uh, since I, you know, first entered the the sector, um, but we still have a long way to go. And there's a couple of things you're doing at your hospital that I found really interesting. Um, one, you have uh, two, you have several corporate values, but two of them in particular caught my attention. You have a corporate value called give a damn and speak up. And I wonder if you can give us a little bit of sense of how those values uh, play into the day-to-day -day environment of your, of your organization. And then also, like, what was the implementation like of those kind of corporate values in a traditionally maybe slow-moving sector that is healthcare sometimes? So I think it's all about culture. It sounds like we define our culture as the way in which we do things on a day-to-day -day basis. And give a damn, to me, represents passion. When you say you give a damn about something, you really care about it. You're passionate about it. And we talk about that a lot, and I want team members to be passionate about what they do. Uh, we're very proud that we're one of Canada's 10 most admired corporate cultures. We won the Passion Capital Award. I think it's all totally tied to give a damn. But, you know, if we think about ourselves as potential clients of using the healthcare system, and you think about the type of individual that's providing your health care, we all want them to care about what they do. We all want them to be passionate. So we talk about that on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'll be the first to say that flying in space, the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life, but truly the most meaningful thing I've ever done in my life is work as a healthcare professional. And sometimes we forget that. But give a damn as a corporate value reminds us of the importance of passion and our ability to commit to doing what we're doing. Speaking up, we want people to speak up. We want to hear from clients. We want to hear from families. We want to hear from staff about how we can do it better. It's a journey of continuous improvement, and I'm thrilled to be on the journey. Great. Um, just going back, I think one of your roles with NASA was you were sort of in charge of the well-being of astronauts, looking at, you know, all these aspects. But I was curious about the mental health. Like, I mean, that to me, it was got to be a very stressful position, you know, um, everything that an astronaut has to undergo, and then being away from family. Like, what kind of things did you did you see from a mental health or a mental well-being standpoint from the people, from astronauts? And, and what kind of things can we learn from that, looking at people in today's society that are dealing with high stress and um, just sort of mirror some practices that we can use to help people's better well-being? 
So as an astronaut, we get trained extensively in technical competencies, what it's like to operate the space shuttle, what we need to do if we do a spacewalk, what it's like controlling the systems of the space station. We also talk and train behavioral competencies. Mm -hmm. We work with crew members to understand how to optimize their feeling of well-being when they're in space. What books do you like to read? Let's make sure they're on the space station. What music do you want to listen to so that you're in a good mood? Uh, the exercise equipment that we have available, will you actually use it? Because we want to make sure that the exercise protocol that's developed for you is individualized for your own needs. So it's, re it's a recognition right from the beginning that behavioral wellness is critical. You can imagine going to Mars, right? It's six months to go to Mars. Do you want to go to Mars with somebody who's always in a bad mood? No, that's probably not a good idea. Mm -hmm. So we talk. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about what it, what we need to make sure that we're not going to be in a good mood all the time. But if we <coughs> do get into a bad mood, what are the resources available for all of us to be able to manage how we feel? And mm -hmm. that's something that's critical. What I love about the space program is that we can talk about it, and we right. can talk about how to get ready for these missions. Now, is that something that corporations should be mirroring, looking at that in that kind of in depth? to optimize sort of presenteeism? To, do you think there was a direct correlation to looking at those aspects of wellness and things that people like to see a connection with productivity in the workforce? You know, I think times are changing, and it's exciting to see the change taking place. We're now very interested at Southlake in trying to figure out how we can create an environment that people can enjoy being at work right. and understand that on any given day, some people may not be at their best. Some people, they may be thriving that day and things. For me personally as an individual, as you can imagine, being a CEO of a hospital, I'm exposed to a lot of challenging situations. And I found that as I drive into work, and I ruminate about these incredibly stressful things, I look out the window and it's a beautiful blue sunny day, and I go, you know, it's, it's a great day. Yeah. And I need to be able to appreciate that and bring that into the environment. And sometimes if I'm not in my best mood at work and I bump into somebody at Southlake who gives a damn and is really <laughs> passionate and right. is in a great mood, that helps me go from where I'm at to getting into a good mood. So we understand the importance of all this, and I love Martin Seligman's idea of creating environments where people can flourish right. and doing what we can to be able to build that in organizations. That's fantastic. Yeah. Provider-centric care is a term that you used uh, earlier this morning in your keynote, and uh, you discussed kind of how the system is still very good at serving the system, and then we kind of need to change that that thinking and uh, in terms of the, the care we provide and, and when we provide it and how we provide it, how is how are we going to, how we as a sector, how are we going to facilitate that kind of change where we're patient-centered as opposed to provider-centered? We're on that journey as well. You know, the, the province has uh, really brought a focus to client-centered care and that's something that we're embracing in the community, we're embracing it in hospitals as well. I think we have to be courageous and sit down with clients and families and ask them about their experiences. And when we do that, they, provided we create an environment of trust, they will share with us where we can get better, where we can improve. You know, as a physician, I've been a physician for a long time, 
uh, I learned more about medicine and the delivery of healthcare when I became a patient than I ever learned as a physician. And being on the receiving end of care in a system helps us understand where there's strengths, but where there's opportunities to improve. So I think we really do need to create opportunities to sit down and have meaningful conversations with clients and families about how we can provide better care, how we can integrate a system that focuses on the delivery of care from a client perspective as opposed to from a provider perspective. Your mom was a, was a nurse and she spent time as a psychiatric nurse. Did you get a perspective from her as to what psychiatric care was at that time when she was delivering uh, care and the evolution of uh, maybe during her time as a professional and, and you renting the medical field as well? Like, did you bounce any ideas off her? Do you ever have any chats about what that experience was like for her? Short answer is yes, and uh, my mother started out as an operating room nurse with a real passion. I, I think, in reality, she wanted to be a surgeon, but you know, in that era, uh, it was more of a male-dominated profession and things. So she ended up as an operating room nurse, very focused on technical procedures and mm. doing things with people or to people that will help cure them surgically. And it was very interesting when uh, she took time off to have children, then went back to healthcare. She chose to go back to psychiatry. Mm. And she ended up as a charge nurse at the St. Anne's Veterans Hospital and spoke with me often about the fact that what she was doing as a psychiatric nurse, probably for her and for her patients or clients, had much greater meaning. Because this was a group of individuals who were isolated and in some cases forgotten. And these were individuals, many of whom fought in World War II and fought in Korea, who gave up so much for our country. And her passion and her commitment was we should give back as much as they gave to us. Mm -hmm. And that was something that she passed on. So for me as an individual, when I went through medical school, I was very fortunate to win the psychiatry prize when I graduated. And that was really because of the commitment that my mother shared with me, our commitment to doing our best for the clients and being able to be there and provide an opportunity to listen, an opportunity to help work together to heal. And I'm just curious. I mean, mental health, um, I think most people in the field would agree it's it's kind of a fragmented system. We need to, to build a better sort of mental health system to serve uh, the population. As you, in, your, in your role, what do you see at mental health? What should we be doing to build a better system that, that supports people throughout their, their journey of recovery? You know, I think it's a great opportunity for us to talk together as providers about how we can smooth the transitions in the system. But we really do need to embrace sitting down as a group uh, from hospital sector, community sector, with our clients to understand their journey. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, when we sit back and we look at a client experience in healthcare, I don't know that we all fully appreciate the challenges mm -hmm. of that experience. So I do not, uh, you know, when you, you think about the spectrum of care, um, we need to understand what it's like accessing the system when you don't have uh, a broad range of mental health challenges, it's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. You can imagine what it's like for somebody who's schizophrenic, who's in a crisis, who's hallucinating, mm -hmm. is partially oriented to their environment, and we expect them to navigate a complex system. That's really horrendous right. to be able to put individuals in that situation. How do we understand that? We understand that from listening to clients and listening to their families and truly trying to embrace from that listening what we can do to make a difference and improve the transitions of care in the system. Great. 
the listening part um, I find really interesting because you mentioned earlier today that um, somebody had reached out to you on Twitter to talk about, to complain about the Wi-Fi service not working at your hospital on a particular day. And you said you welcome that. Like you want people to reach out to you, feel like they can, they can speak out and be, and be heard. And I wonder if you feel like in your role and CEOs in general, like leadership in hospitals, do they need or should they be focusing on these technologies like social media and technology and different ways to engage patients? Like, has that become a bigger part of what you need to do or what you feel you need to do on a, a daily basis to connect with your, your potential uh, clients? So I've been on Twitter for years, you know, probably 2009, somewhere around there I started out on Twitter as an astronaut. And there I have a following of, I don't know, 11,000 people and things. And then as a CEO, I started on Twitter as soon as I started working at Southlake. Now I have about 1,800 followers. And it's interesting, the disparity between the two. But I embrace Twitter as a tool to be able to listen to the community. And when we get a tweet that uh, thanks us for the great quality of care, that's exciting, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I will immediately tweet back if I see it and say thank you so much for the feedback. We really appreciate it. I'm so proud of our team. If we get a tweet that's an opportunity to improve, those are the ones that I really embrace because we are committed to improving. Some things I can't solve right away, you know, so the, the tweeting about Wi-Fi, we actually do have a, a patient network available uh, through Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. The problem is that hospitals are built over time so different sections of the hospital have different coverage and you know if you're in the hospital you might be in a section that doesn't have the greatest coverage but if we don't hear about it we can't fix it if we do hear about it we can then put it on the list of things that we can try and fix I think that's great. I love the way that um, technology is being embraced by our organization as well but um, the healthcare sector has kind of acknowledged that we need to we need to change the way we do business and listening to to patients and and having discussions like the one you just had with us and the one that you had uh, to kick off the conference. Uh, I think it was great for the people who were at your keynote because your background is so interesting and uh, your passion for mental health care is quite evident. So uh, the the two make for a very quick hour and a very quick interview. Yeah. And we thank you for yeah. taking the time to, much. to join pleasure. us today. Well, thank you very, very much. You know, I'm so excited at Southlake. We have an innovation center called Create It Now. They're actually working on an app that uh, mm. will help with mindfulness and things. Really exciting opportunity nice. for patients. And, you know, we're, we are committed to understanding the patient experience. Uh, Dr. Mehta has been looking at ECT therapy and under, trying to understand why some patients will come and for one session and not come for the full sessions. But it truly is all about embracing technology for the future and listening to our clients and their families families to see what direction we need to go in. Thank you so much oh, thank for having you. me great. today and congratulations for the great work you're doing at Ontario Shores. Great. Thank you Thanks very much. much. So we're here at the uh, day one of the CMHA conference and we're lucky enough to have Michelle Rodrigue the Vice President of Organizational Performance and Public Affairs at the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Oh, glad to do so. Okay. Thank you. One of the things that's a really big topic here at the, at the conference and in the mental health world in, in general is uh, the stigma of, of mental health. And even though it's come a long way in, in probably the last five, ten years, uh, we still have a long way to go, I, I gather, just by the conversations that are taking place here. Yeah. Uh, from the Mental Health Commission of Canada's perspective, where are we in stigma and where do we need to go? 
think you've said um, you captured it. We have a long way to go, but we have made some progress. Um, I think where uh, we are able to reach people well is within the workplace. Hmm. And the workplace programs uh, that we've developed are creating healthier workplaces where the stigma associated with mental illness, mental problems are uh, being addressed both from the perspective of employees who are suffering those and from the perspective of employers. It's in their best interest to put these programs in place. Why? Because a large number of the short-term and long-term uh, cost of absenteeism, uh, lack of productivity, can be addressed by addressing and properly supporting people living with mental health illnesses and problems. Right. And one of the things the commission uh, does so well, you brought in mental health first aid to Canada. Um, great program. We're involved with that as well. I always look at that program and think, you know, there there are careers in society where first aid, general first aid is mandatory. Do you think we'll ever as a society in certain roles say that mental health first aid should be a mandatory tool for, for society in certain aspects? We're hoping that mental um, health becomes as much as an item that you need to address as physical first aid. Right. So, um, for instance, at the Mental Health Commission, we mandate all our employees to take mental health first aid right. because it's something that is useful in our work and we can then intervene in case of a crisis. Right. Uh, I think the federal government is currently looking at doing the same. Why? Because they've just recently mandated the implementation of the workplace and psychological safety standard right. within all their workplaces. Right, yeah. So it works hand in hand. You have mental health training as well. Uh, so the two work together. Right. Will it become mandatory? I think more and more as provinces take stock of what needs to happen, mm -hmm. as employers and industries take stock, Hopefully, it will become a mandated program. Great. Do you have an idea of the impact that mental health first aid is having in the workplaces? Have you gotten feedback and like good news stories about the changes that are being made and kind of the way that the workplace is kind of transformed as a result? Two types. One, anecdotal. Mm -hmm. We have people who come to us all the time. Thank God I had taken it mental health first aid because one week after my training two weeks after my training I faced a colleague family member that was facing a crisis mm -hmm. and I knew what to do right. if I had not taken the program I would not know what to do on the research side it's been a well researched program so the impacts of the program are well defined and it's so much so that now we've developed different versions of a mental health first aid, A, for uh, northern peoples. Mm -hmm. We're just doing so for people, veterans. Uh, the same for Inuit and the state for First Nations. So we're really trying to adapt the program because it is so successful, it is evidence-based, to different populations. Mm. It's one, one of the things that Dr. Williams mentioned in his uh, keynote address this morning was that when it comes to traditional healthcare, like acute care settings, <clears throat> we tend to look at illnesses 
um, independently. So you'd have specialized services for cancer treatment and for diabetes and, and so on. But when it comes to mental illness, it's just one bucket, just mental illnesses. And that's kind of the way the world views it, is that uh, is what you're describing in terms of more specific programming for different populations, kind of trying to, to kind of unopen, open up that box of, uh, that has traditionally been mental health. Well, I think those are two separate issues. Mm. Uh, one, that box of, you know, addiction and mental illness are often related. Uh, there are uh, people who suffer critical uh, illnesses often will lead to uh, mental health issues and problems. So I think those elements are interrelated and we need to bring it back to individuals and what are their needs, what are their individual situation, and create a program for them individually rather than trying to uh, segment what their um, diseases or issues are. On specific populations, I think we need to recognize that uh, First Nations, for instance, have very different needs. Mm -hmm. Culturally based, they perceive wellness very differently. So you need to adapt mental health first aid for them specifically, by them, for them. Mm -hmm. The same with people who live in northern communities, the same for Inuit. Veterans have had challenging issues. Uh, PTSD is a critical element that's affecting a lot of our ve veterans. So developing mental health first aid for veterans is an excellent way to um, ensure that we provide them with some of the tools required to interact and to intervene with themselves and with their colleagues. Hmm. And staying on the stigma piece, um, I know that it's sort of a, a real challenge when you've got, when we look at traditional healthcare, usually the, the more ill you get, the more compassion people have. We talk about cancer and things like that, but mental health is different. Like some people can get on board with Bell Let's Talk and great programs or adolescent mental health or maybe dementia. But when we get into the psychotic disorders, then they tend to pull away more. So the more ill people get mental, uh, mental illness, the more that people, um, you know, especially in our hospital, we have a forensic population. That's probably the most stigmatized population there is. You know, and maybe I'm putting it on the spot, but what what kind of what things can we do to sort of change that, that we have more compassion for the people that may have have the more serious illnesses or fall through the cracks? Well, you s countering stigma is the way we're going to get around that. Um, in the workplace, we talked about this earlier, you need to address the fact that if someone breaks a leg, someone has a heart attack, people will automatically coalesce, send them notes, uh, send them food, for instance, and make sure they are supported in their recovery. Mm -hmm. When someone goes off on a depression, no one quite knows what to do. Uh, no one will reach out because they are uncomfortable about mm -hmm. reaching out. So people are isolated. On top of that, they are well aware that often it's still too often. It is still perceived as a career-limiting move as a sign of weakness. So we have not gotten to those stigmatizing mm -hmm. elements yet. We have made progress, but there's a great deal of work to be done. Right. And I think one of the first mandates of the commission was to develop a 10-year anti-stigma program. 
we didn't solve it in the first 10 years. We're looking for our next 10 years to really continue that work with our partners on the right. ground. One of the interesting thing with, with, with the workplace, you know, we've been there to speak to, to companies as well. And, and, and how do you build a culture where people feel comfortable to talk about it? I always said, you know, if you look at something like Bell or George Cope or different, different, you know, even the president of our university, when the head of an organization speaks about their own yeah. struggles, I think that is, empowers people to feel like, okay, well, you're at this level, you're openly talking about it, they feel more comfortable in the organization of coming forward and, and sharing their story. So true. Uh, that is so true, and it um, has a real impact, personal impact on individuals, and has a real impact on the culture of organizations. It's okay to have been ill and to recover. Right. And the whole concept of recovery is at the foundational piece for that. Right? If you take away the perception that if you're ill, mentally ill, you will never be well. Right. Well, there is a sense of recovery where you can still contribute and uh, live a very fulsome life. We're seeing a kind of a movement uh, on the celebrity front in terms of coming out about their experiences with uh, mental illness. And uh, I think of Kristen Bell as a recent one. Glenn Close has been uh, uh, an advocate Quite. for for mental health right. issues for, for quite some time. Um, I'm not sure I ever thought we'd get there, to be honest. Um, you see a lot of prominent people step up for a lot of different causes, and I wasn't sure that mental health would be on that, next on that list, but we're, we're seeing that now, and I think it's, you know, um, regardless of what your view of, of celebrity is, I think they have the power to have a pretty, pretty interesting impact on, on stigma and mental health moving forward. Agreed. Um Anyone who's recognizable, mm -hmm. celebrity, uh, politician, etc., who are s come out in a very straightforward way and indicate that yes, I was ill, I recovered. This is the impact. These are the actions as a society we need to take in order to break down the wall of stigma. Mm -hmm and provide adequate services for individuals, it is really um, making a difference. And they are making a strong difference. We see it in our day-to-day -day work, so do you. Mm -hmm. It's quite uh, positive, reassuring that people have that strength and feel that it's okay mm -hmm. to be take that bold step and move forward, um, particularly public personalities, and I would encourage others to do the same because it is really having an impact. Hmm. You can see the impact uh, here at a conference like this, just the, all, the, all the years of work in, in bringing mental health to the forefront, yeah. the sharing of stories in the different groups, um, being able to talk to you about, uh, about this topic and others. It's, uh, we're really happy that you're able to join us today. I just want to add Thank one you. thing. Um, the youth, youth, the youth piece, I'd like to maybe if the commission, yes. um, obviously we had the Kids Help Phone survey that came out to show the prevalence of young people contemplating suicide or even making a plan. Can you tell us a little bit from the commission perspective, some of the youth suicide prevention work that, that you're undertaking? Yes. Um, I think regarding youth, we need to break down the stigma around mental illnesses. So one of those critical pieces is uh, Headstrong, a program that we mm. run, which really has an intervention, which is really an intervention in high schools. Right. 
And what it's been demonstrated to uh, lead to is that once you've gone through the program and your school builds the program around it, people are less uh, likely to go around you when you are identified as living with a mental illness. Right. They will reach out to you and go speak to you and include you in your circle cycle, mm, a nice. social cycle. So you're no longer isolated. Um, further, we are very much involved in uh, developing and trying to implement a project that would uh, see a number of communities implement a community suicide prevention model. Right. It has been demonstrated in other jurisdictions to reduce the incidence of suicide by 20% wow. over a two-year period. Wow. So I think the lessons that we've learned, it's communities that will really need to get together and will have an impact on uh, suicide rates. Mm. And we need to have evidence-based models right. that are applicable to Canada in different contexts and will have the success that we need in order to really get at this high level of suicide rates that have remained overly high for the last couple of decades. Right. That's excellent. That's great. I think we're uh, yeah. we're still working on our communication between each other. Well, so I, I didn't. Think, I uh, didn't. I, I wanted to keep going. Anyone? <laughs> well, guys, it was a pleasure. Uh, we really appreciate. Thank you, you for this, time. and thank you to Ontario Shores for okay. taking this leadership. It's always a pleasure to work with you. Oh, well, thank yeah. you very much. Thanks, Michelle. Have a great day. Okay. That was awesome. It's great. Dr. Dave Williams and Michelle Rodrigue from the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Pretty good day one at the Mental Health for All conference here at the Hilton in Toronto. Yeah, it was a really good guest, really insightful. I mean, we could have spent more time talking to them, but uh, I know it was really interesting to see where the commissions, you know, where the work that they're doing and, and, you know, things like we do mental health first aid and just to see the demands that they're seeing across the sector was interesting. And it's great to be here. Like, it really sound, maybe sound a little cheesy, but it um, from what we do, trying to be innovative and, and igniting conversations around mental health, you can see kind of people walking by, seeing what we're doing, uh, listening in on our guests, and hopefully uh, everybody has a chance to enjoy it, episode two. I hope so. I hope we, uh, I hope your mom keeps watching. It drives the numbers <laughs> That's up. That's pretty That'd much guaranteed. Yeah. Okay. All right. So until next time. Thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in. Visit mindvine.ontarioshores.ca for details on upcoming podcasts. And don't forget to keep the conversation going on social media by using hashtag Mindvine. Yeah,